Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Topical and, and do what Calvary Chapel t- does uh, is, is speak through, study through the Bible. So we are going to do First Thessalonians this morning. Let's pray. Father, we quiet in our hearts before you this morning, looking to you, the word of life, light, hope, faith, all comes from you. And we ask this morning, Father, that your words would quicken our spirits, that you would build these characteristics in us, that you would transform us by your word and by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would touch us where we need it most this morning. We ask you to encourage the discouraged, lift up the downcast, Fill us with your joy and your peace as only you are the source of peace and hope. And Lord, we just thank you for these people. These people today, I ask your blessing on them. They're doing, I know they're doing their best to serve you, to live for you, to love you. And Father, I just ask you to reward them as your faithful servants in Jesus' name. Amen. Next slide, please. Rick. Thank you, Rick, by, by the way, for doing the slides. There is a clock in the University of Chicago. It's called the Doomsday Clock. And the time on the clock perpetually lingers just shy of midnight. On this clock, midnight represents full nuclear war, bringing an end to all of civilization. And this clock's meant to gauge constantly uh, that situation to indicate how close we are, our proximity to that horrific event. It was created by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and that is a group out of the University of Chicago, scientists who also worked on the Manhattan Project to help develop the first world atomic weapons. The Bulletin and this group was founded in 1945. The Doomsday Clock was designed by them in 1947 to warn the public of how close civilization was to destroying the planet with dangerous technologies of our own making. The bulletin considers factors such as climate change, nuclear war, cyber warfare, as well as political responses to these threats to determine how vulnerable the world is to catastrophe. Each year, the bulletin's board of sponsors and science and security board decide whether to move the clock's hands. Currently, the board of sponsors includes 13 Nobel laureates, most winning the prize in physics or chemistry. When this clock was introduced in 1947, it was set at seven minutes till midnight. They felt that at that time, that's how close we were to destroying our planet. Since that day, its minute hand has moved back and forth. It's been... uh, as far as 17 minutes away from midnight. It changes during major events throughout our uh, history. It changed during the assassination of President Kennedy, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the Twin Towers were attacked, it was changed, the Gulf War, the war in Afghanistan, and and lots of other events have affected the the doomsday clock. 17 minutes till midnight is the farthest it's been away from midnight. And that was back in the 90s, I think. In January 2020 this year, the clock was moved to 100 seconds till midnight. That's the closest it's ever been. So it seems appropriate that we take a look at a book of the Bible that's primary uh, point is about the end times. Next slide, please. 
1 Thessalonians talks a lot about the second coming of Jesus. And I know with all that's happened in our country and, and in the news even this week, a lot of people are asking that question. How close are we to the second coming of Christ? Well, 1 Thessalonians covers a wide range of themes in only five short chapters. It talks about election, friendship, Satan, sex, love, work, and death, just to name a few. But perhaps the most dominant theme is the end times, specifically the second coming of Jesus. It is mentioned in every chapter of the book. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and verses 23 and 24 of chapter 5. Next slide, please. Interestingly, the title, The Lord Jesus, appears 11 times throughout this five-chapter letter, more than any other New Testament epistle except 2 Thessalonians, where it occurs, Lord Jesus occurs 12 times, and 1 Corinthians, where it occurs 11 times. For all of Paul's emphasis on other important matters, election, friendship, Satan, sex, all those things, the ultimate focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thessalonians, for a brief background, I put you a map up there to look at. Thessalonica was the proud capital of a Roman province called Macedonia. It had a population of over 100,000 people. It was built on a natural harbor. Its placement was on a, on a highway that the Romans built called the Ignatian Way. And it was an east-west highway as well as being part of a harbor. And it was also a key north-south trade route, which meant that it was a flourishing trade center. Um, it had a lot of, lot of activity going on. And, of course, there was a lot of philosophy taught there. It was a free city that was governed by local officials called politarchs. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 8. Religiously, the city was just a mix of everything. They worshipped the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods and the imperial cult. There were Egyptian cults there, uh, prominent at that time. But there was also a sizable population of Jews that lived in Thessalonica, and you can find that point in Acts chapter 17, verse 5. Paul, Timothy, and Silas preached in the Thessalonian synagogue for three Sabbaths, and a number of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles believed in that. You can find that story in Acts chapter 17, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10 suggests that Paul subsequently spent some weeks ministering to the pagan Gentiles there. But while he was preaching, however, rioters instigated by Jewish opponents to Christianity, they didn't want to accept Jesus as a Messiah. So these opponents dragged Jason, who was Paul's, um, Paul's host. He was, he was housing Paul and, and, and Timothy and Silas. They dragged Jason and some other Christian leaders before the governors and charged them with sedition against Caesar. And you can read about that event in Acts chapter 17, verse 5 and 8. Forcing these missionaries to leave Thessalonica prematurely. And uh, that's also in Acts chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. So Paul, having gotten to preach there for three Sabbaths, was concerned about these new Christians. And therefore, a few months later, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica 
and he caught up with Paul. Timothy came back to Paul when Paul was in Corinth. And you can see all those places on this map that, that I have up there. So Timothy updated Paul on the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Timothy reported that generally the church community was doing well. However, not everything at Corinth was rosy. It wasn't perfect. Some members of the church had died, and because of that, they were not fully informed about what would happen to deceased Christians at Christ's return. They feared that they would miss the second coming of Jesus. They thought those who had died would miss out on the second coming, and that caused them to be plunged into hopeless grieving uh, about that situation. Some had questions about the second coming, when it was going to be. Some felt it was imminent. Some did not, just like today. Another, another thing that was a problem there, the new Christians had not expected persecution. They didn't expect it to happen, and then when it did happen, they didn't expect persecution to last as long as it was lasting or to be as severe as it was. Others were giving the church a bad name because... You know, the early church, everybody had everything common. Everybody shared what they had. There was no, this is mine and that's yours and don't you touch my stuff. It was everybody lived for everybody. And the, the problem was that there were some lazy Christians who were sponging off the wealthy Christians that wouldn't work. They were, they were taken from the wealthy Christians instead of working. Next slide, please. Oh, I'm sorry, back up one. I'm not ready for that. <laughs> Got ahead of myself. Geographically, the Thessalonian believers were located in Thessalonica. But uh, as you can see here, now you can do the next slide. It's a, it's a place in northern Greece. Let's read that first scripture. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that physically... It was located in Macedonia. But when Paul greets, and also I wanted to point out that Silvanus is just another name for Silas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Um, but the first thing Paul points out is not their physical location, but their spiritual location. He reminds them that they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more important where we are physically, uh, spiritually than it is physically. And Paul wants to point that out to them. Also, this next phrase, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians is thought to be Paul's second oldest letter. Only, the only letter older is Galatians. He uses this phrase, grace to you and peace from God, in all of his letters except Galatians. That's interesting. It's also interesting that grace precedes peace. Many folks have tried to achieve peace with God through different aspects, through different ways. But there's always has to be grace. The first step is God's, and he has taken that through Jesus our Lord. Grace precedes uh, the peace with God. That's no other way you can work, you can strive, you can give away all your riches to the poor. It still doesn't make peace with God. It had to be made through the act of grace of our Savior upon the cross. <clears throat> Why do you think that Paul wanted to point out their spiritual address? Because of all the things that were coming in on them, it's important to know who you are in God. 
it's important to know that God has taken the first step, that God has chosen you, that he that began this good work in you has promised to perform it and complete it until the day of the resurrection. That's why it's important that Paul pointed that out. Where are we located spiritually? (coughs) Excuse me. Let's look at the next phrase. Paul, I'm sorry, back up a slide. I didn't mean for you to change slides. Um, Grace and peace to you from, from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you. Next slide, please. In our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. When we think of faith, uh, love, and hope, we typically don't think of the words Paul has tied to them here. We think of them as some kind of, you know, really hard to define but notice here that Paul tethers this triad of virtues to some remarkably active words. We have, we have kind of, in our generation, been taught, you know, just simply believe and we're saved and that's kind of put on our fireproof underwear and wait for Jesus to return. But Paul here says, notice that he ties work, labor, and steadfastness to these three virtues. Because, as James said, faith without works is dead. We're not saved by works at all. We are saved by grace. But if it is a genuine work of grace and a genuine faith, there should be some works. There should be uh, some labor and steadfastness. Now notice also that Paul says he does not cease to give thanks and make mention of these fellow Christians. And I, I thought about that too this morning. I thought, how many times my prayers are about me, my immediate family, instead of the world? That we as Christians should have the viewpoint of God and be continually praying, not just for ourselves or our family or our small circle of friends or our church, but for the whole world. Why do you think Paul ties work labor, and steadfastness to, to these virtues. Because without them, without this evidence, it would seem it would be a dead faith. It would be a pointless faith if, if it didn't produce fruit. Jesus said, I came to give you life. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll bring forth much fruit. It's not from us, it's from him. So what is our job? Our job is to yield. Our job is to surrender. I recently got reprimanded for something I put on Facebook by a local pastor. Um, I put a a meme up that had these big-name preachers, I won't mention any names, that were making millions of dollars. And the caption said, The gospel is to be told, not to be sold. Well, a pastor sent me a message in Messenger that I should not be doing that, that I was judging, that I was crucifying these people in the open, and blah, 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 blah. And I came back, of course, because I'm not one to sit down and take that. 
I came back and said, you know, my Bible says that any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That we're supposed to be building a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. And how can we, John says in the epistles of John, if we have this world's goods and we shut up our heart, how does the love of God dwell within us? Jesus also said, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So I told him, I said, I'm not crucifying them. I'm calling them to accountability. Just as I call myself to accountability. Throughout my life, there's been things that, you know, just like everybody else here, your flesh wants. You might want, it might be a boat for you. It might be, I don't know, a vacation in Hawaii. I don't know. But all these things are not necessarily evil. But those things can get in the way. I'll give you an example. When I first got saved, Roy and I worked in a grocery store together. I first got saved, and I had about 200 vinyl albums. I was into Southern Rock and Led Zeppelin and all that stuff, you know. Nothing really demonic, but rock and roll. And when I started this journey with God, God put his finger on that. And I took those records out on the farm, and I burned them. And at that time, Roy, I told Roy about it, and Roy said, Man, why did you do that? Why didn't you sell them? Why didn't you give them to me or whatever? <laughs> Roy, that was pre-Roy getting in church and getting saved. So, you know, don't judge him too harshly. <laughs> but the only answer I could come up with was that those things had too much importance in my life. And there, I told Roy, I said, I don't know, God put his finger on it. I got I to gotta do this. I did. And I said, if they're not good enough for me, they're not good enough for you. So it's not so much that the church is going to be drug away to these terrible sinful things. as that the good things can get in between us and him. The good things sometimes can become the wrong things. Paul talks, too, here about election, and I know that's a big debate in Christian circles, and that can really get some things heated. But Paul doesn't look at it as something to be argued about, but he, looks at, he, he points out that that's something that we should take to be confident, that God has taken the first step. He has chosen you. Jesus said, no man can come to the Father except he draw, the Holy Spirit draws them. You're sitting here today not by your free will, actually, because it is your free will that you're here, but if God hadn't spoken to your heart, you wouldn't be seeking him. You wouldn't be in church. You wouldn't be thinking about godly things. You'd be like all those people we've seen on TV this week, rioting, burning, seeing what you can get for nothing. So just as the Thessalonians here imitated Paul and his fellow workers, the, this verse tells us, let's skip to the next slide, please. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you. So these Thessalonian guys, they saw the heart of Paul and Timothy and Silas, how that these men were willing to be beaten. They were willing to, to have very little as far as this world's goods for this gospel. And they knew that certified to them that this thing's real. This is really real. He says, our gospel didn't come to you in word. You see, there's a lot of folks think that they can just study the word, study the scriptures, read their Bible, and that's all it is. But it takes intimacy with God to change your life. We've preached a beneficial gospel instead of, trans instead of a transformational gospel. These guys, when they saw what Paul and Timothy preached, 
they changed. They imitated it. It, it's, it's, it. There was a dramatic difference in how they lived their everyday life. See, they became examples to other people as Paul and Silas had been examples to them. So what about us today? When people look at our life, do they see that we're transformed? Do they see something that they want? Do they glimpse what it means to embrace Jesus? Do they see what it means to live our lives for him? Or are we kind of hard to distinguish between the guy out there who's all about himself? You see, the world says it's all about you. And Jesus said, if any man, if any man seeks to save his life, he'll lose it. But those who give their life for my sake will save it. The world says, what you don't know won't hurt you. The Bible says, my people perish for a lack of understanding and a lack of wisdom. Jesus said, if any man would deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. If any man would be my follower. The first thing is to deny self. That's our biggest battle. It doesn't mean self-denial. It means to let God be in control for us to be yielded to him. Just as these Thessalonians imitated Paul, we're called to imitate Paul, to imitate Jesus in our life. And there's a lot of things that when we look at our life, sometimes we, we fail there. Today, many Christians face increasing pressure just to individualize or privatize their faith, to kind of be secret service, undercover Christians. There's pressure today says, for us that, well, you know, you, just keep that on the down low. Don't be spoken. Don't be outspoken about your faith in Christ. You know, don't cause waves. Don't cause problems. But these things, my friends, are eternal. These, this gospel is truth. Jesus said the truth would make you free. It can't be hid under a bushel. It challenges us in these lines. If the Thessalonians also, uh, let's see the next slide. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples in all Macedonia and Archaea who believed. So these guys' lives was transformed by the fact of what they saw in Paul and Silas. And they had, next slide please, also tells us that they turned from idols. For, for you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Archaea, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Your lifestyle has become a testimony. Your lifestyle is probably the only gospel some people will ever read. What you have served, what's that old saying? Only one life soon is past. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see, this thing is real. And we are in tumultuous times. I don't know if the end is very soon, imminent, or if it's going to be 50 more years. God only knows. But we as a church need to be the church and not come to church just that's the problem with many of our lives is we come to church instead of being the church and we teach our children that coming to church is Christianity. And it is not. Coming to church won't save you. Paying your tithes won't save you. Reading your Bible won't save you. Jesus said in, in John chapter 17 verse 3, and this is eternal life 
that you know the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. It is about yielding. It is about intimacy. And many of us don't get intimate with God because we have not really been enlightened as to what God has done for us and where He has placed us in His kingdom, in that we are in the Father, in the Son. When He looks at you this morning, He doesn't see your failures. He doesn't see those sins of the past. He sees the blood of His Son. And so I would encourage you in your personal time with devotional time with God that you start looking at these promises that Jesus has made in the Bible. Just like these Thessalonians guys did. They got charged up enough that they changed their world. You think about it. 120 people from the book of Acts turned this whole world upside down and it has lasted for thousands of years. That power is still available to us today if we will yield to it. This last verse, uh, let's turn to the next slide, please. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had into you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says that you have testified to what kind of people we were, and now you're doing that very same thing. You're imitating us. You're living like we live because we're imitating Jesus. You're imitating us, and henceforth Jesus. And he said, you've turned to God from idols. Now, these folks not only worshipped you know, all these pantheon of gods, there were the Greek, Greco-Roman gods, there was Zeus, and there was Athena, and Poseidon, and all these different phony gods. But see, the Jewish people that were there also were waiting on the Messiah. They hadn't believed in Jesus. These people turned from that to God. And I, I fear our generation doesn't really worship wooden or stone idols, but there's so many other idols we have in our life. We have idols of our job, idols of our retirement plan maybe can even be an idol, our homes, our cars, our whatever it is that gets your wheels spinning. Maybe it's guns, guitars, or who knows. These things all can become idols, just as those records were an idol to me when I first got saved. See, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to be that you're a, a criminal or that you want to uh, practice illicit sex or, or that you want to rob banks or that you want to steal, kill. It can be something very simple, something that typically can be good, can be turned into an idol. It can separate us from God. So we must guard our hearts. These people had turned from, from stone idols, and our generation doesn't have that problem, but we do have a problem with this other kind of idol. Paul points out that they turned from those lifeless things to the living God. We need to realize that all around us, all that we see is going to pass away with a fervent heat. Everything we see, touch, and feel is temporary. Only the spiritual kingdom is eternal. And just like those pastors that I got reprimanded for, for calling to accountability, I asked that pastor, I said, where are they building their kingdom? Are they building the kingdom here or are they building the kingdom for Jesus? Because all that millions of dollars, guess what? It's going to pass away. It's going to pass away. 
notice here that Paul says that they have turned from these false gods to the true and living God. And we wait for his son. We kind of tend to think of waiting as being a passive thing. And most of us aren't very good at that. We're not good at waiting, are we? But notice here that Paul connects waiting with serving. Something we usually think of as being active. He connects waiting with looking and hoping for the return of Jesus. Christian waiting is a lot different than worldly waiting. The world is waiting to win the lottery. Well, we're waiting to win a different kind of lottery. And it troubles me to see so many Christians upset with our circumstances. And, and I, I could be wrong, but I think our, our situation in the news, what you see around us, is only going to get worse as the day draws near. Jesus said that. When he asked him, what's the sign of your return? He said, oh, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes in diverse places, nation against nation, family members against family members. He said, but the end is not yet. So as terrible as the things that we see on the, on the 24-hour news cycle are, we could be in for a long ride. So waiting is important. Why? It's being steadfast. How can we be steadfast? Because we're assured that just as the same God raised his son from the dead for us, he will return to redeem us from this fallen planet. So I guess today the point of this first chapter is we need to self-examine ourselves. Are we imitating Christ? Does the people we come in contact know that we're Christians? Are we secret service? Are we afraid to speak up? Do we have idols in our life? Is our profession of faith tied to work? Is our love tied to labor? Are we, is it producing steadfastness in us? Or are we up and down, in and out? I ask you these questions. I ask myself these questions. Are there idols in our lives? Are there things that we, we sacrifice our time with God for that would be better spent seeking his face and becoming more intimate with him, to know him? These are all questions we need to personally ask. And I want to point out that Jesus condemned no one. We like to quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But I love that next verse even better. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. Don't let the enemy of your soul browbeat you and remind you of your past or even maybe your failure today. Maybe you blew it before you came to church this morning. When you enter into your time of prayer with God, I want you to think about what he's done for you. He sent his only son to wash you, to make you spotless, blameless. I want you to profess that to him when you pray. I want you to spend time seeking his face
unashamed. The scriptures tells us that he has presented, he's, he's worked to present us blameless before him. And so that we, therefore, we should boldly come to the throne of grace to seek help in the time of need. So many of us, we, we fall into that trap of the accuser. The one who condemns is not Jesus, it's the devil. He came to kill, steal, and destroy. And he's busy. Look at the news. Look at the, our community. We see people violently being taken because of drugs and alcohol and all these things. It's because that is the work of Satan. God, I've heard Eddie Day preach this in his church. God so loves you that if he had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. And that is true. That is true. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. That's how he cares for you. So when you enter in, you know, enter in and learn to be intimate with him, to know him, to fellowship with him, seek his guidance day by day, step by step. Let's imitate him. Let's not have idols. Let's look for his, his second coming and be steadfast, not hearts filled with fear. That's another point I wanted to make. You know, so many people talk about the mark of the beast. You know, I think it might have something to do with fear. I know it's not a physical mark that will be able to affect transactions or that kind of thing, which the mark of the beast is supposed to. But also I think the mark of the beast could be fear. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. In fellowship with Christ, there won't be fear. Do you think those Christians that were martyred were afraid when they hung them upside down and crucified them, when they burned them and boiled them in oil? The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. If we are intimate and know our Creator, we won't be afraid of the things coming on the earth. We won't be having heart attacks like the unbelievers because we know our redemption draws nigh. This finishes our first chapter in 1 Thessalonians. And I would encourage you to read it, search the scriptures, and apply it to your life. Thank you, Pastor Bill.